This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Dave Woodard. A disturbing report was released last week by the Canadian Institute for Health Information on wait times across 11 industrialized countries, including Canada. The Institute pulled numbers from a study done by the Commonwealth Fund back in November. Some of the baseline numbers are staggering. 43% of those polled said they could get in to see their doctor on the same day or the next day if they were sick. Even fewer, 34%, said they could make appointments in the evening or the weekend. Both of those numbers, by the way, put Canada dead last on the list in those categories. So because of that, we're forced to go to emergency departments more often. And often it's for things like the common cold or a sore throat, things that could easily be treated by a general physician if you could get in to see them. But imagine getting turned away by your regular doc or can't get in when they're ready for you, only to go to the ER and wait more than four hours to be seen. Talk about a colossal waste of time. But sadly, it happens way too often. Three in ten Canadians report having to wait more than four hours in an emergency room, which is well above the 11-nation average and dead last among those nations. In fact, out of eight measures of timely access to health care in this study, Canada finished dead last in seven of them. What's been your experience with your doctor? Can you get in to see your GP on a day's notice? And what's the longest you've had to wait to see a doctor in the ER? I'd like to hear your stories. 416-360-0740 or one 740 there are a lot of startling numbers from this study. And for analysis, we bring in Bacchus Barua from the Fraser Institute Center for Health Policy Studies. Good afternoon, Bacchus. Good afternoon, Dave. Thanks so much for having me on the show. What's your take on this? Well, you know, I think you actually did a fantastic job of, of summarizing it. Um, and that's that Canadians are facing extremely, extremely long wait times at every single step of the way. Um, right from the beginning when, it, when you're, they're trying to get an appointment um, on the same or the next day when they're sick, you know, trying to access their, their GP or their clinic, um, it's the worst access when it comes to that. It's the worst access when it comes to after-hours care. Um, even when they do resort to going to an emergency department, they're having to wait o- over four hours for, for treatment more than any of the other countries that are being surveyed. Um, then, you know, take another step. You know, if you actually are able to make an appointment with a specialist, we're dead lost when it comes to that as well. And we're also dead lost when it comes to actually getting treatment for elective surgery. So literally every single step of the process, patients are facing significant wait times and significant barriers uh, in terms of their ability to get attention when they actually need medical care. Um, I think this is, you know, we have several reports coming out, um, both by us, the Fraser Institute, by the Wait Times Alliance. Um, and I think, you know, this is just really adding more information to something that Canadians actually know very, very well. And that's that we have some of the longest wait times for treatment in the developed world. I think for me, one of the most worrisome things in this report is that the numbers seem to be getting worse, or if not worse, they're not improving at all since 2013. 
Absolutely. You know, uh, with with the numbers that are in this report, that the movement is very, very small. So, I'm, you know, I'm looking at the wait times for um, specialists. You know, that's gone from 56 up to, uh, sorry, 56% of patients who waited four weeks or longer to see a specialist went to 57 in 2013, back to 56 in 2016. Even if you do see improvements in the one to two percentage points, that's really not where we want to be. If we look at the country that performed best in that indicator, Switzerland, um, they reported only 22% uh, of patients had to wait uh, that long in order to see a specialist versus in Canada 56. That's the sort of change that we want to start looking at. Um, and then when you start corroborating this sort of information with um, the sort of research that we've been doing at the Fraser Institute, um, you really get to see a much larger chronological picture. So. We annually conduct a study called Waiting Your Turn, which asks physicians how long their patients have had to wait for treatment. Um, last year in November, when we released the results, the wait time was about 20 weeks between uh, getting a referral from a general practitioner to actually receiving treatment. For context, in 1993, when we actually started doing that report, that wait time was only 9.3 weeks. That means that over a span of you know, 20, 25 years, the wait time has more than doubled. That's really telling you the true story of how wait times have evolved in Canada over the last two and a half, over the last two and a half decades. And why do you think that is? You know, honestly, it's, it's, it's actually a very simple answer. It's because the system hasn't really fundamentally changed. It hasn't really responded to, um, to this issue um, in, in any really significant way. Uh, when the Fraser Institute started conducting its study in, in the early 90s, uh, we were facing challenges where politicians, policymakers, um, e even people in the medical industry were questioning the very existence of wait times. Um, and we had heard a lot of anecdotal evidence from, from a lot of people that, that they were suffering these significant waits, and yet there weren't any measures. And that's why we started measuring it. Um, by about the you know, 2000s, people started understanding that, okay, you know, Maybe there are weights, but we disagree with the measures. We want to measure it this way. We want want to measure it a different way, and that's sort of where the where the where the problem and the discussions were being were happening. And now we finally come to the point where you know pretty much regardless of where you look, every single measure is showing us that we're waiting very very long for treatment, and yet we aren't really seeing any fundamental change. Um, part of it is because. Some provinces are um, confined to the restrictions within the Canada Health Act, which you know I'd be happy to go into, but it's really a financial act. It really has very little to do um, with uh, with individuals and what the system can do. It has to do with how much money is being transferred between the federal government and the provincial governments. Um, and the other is simply our our reticence to to change the system because we're very very scared um, of the American system because it's so close to us. But one of the one of the things that this report is really highlighting is that there are so many other countries with universal health care that are doing far better than us. Um, if we look at the countries in this report, you know, look at them. It's Switzerland, the Netherlands, Germany, Australia, France, the United Kingdom, Sweden, New Zealand, Norway. All of these countries have universal health care. All of them are doing far better than us when it comes to wait times. The thing is, they're doing universal health care differently. And I think that's where we need to start looking at. Right. And I, I did want to bring that up to say, you know, is it universal health care? Is that the issue? Is there room in Canada for a two-tier system or just do we have to do it differently? Well, you know, I think this, this entire concept of two-tier is, is, is a – that itself is a little bit of a distraction because, you know, even currently we have a multi-tier system. Um, if you have insurance with, uh, you know, workers' compensation boards in certain provinces, you can get – private treatment. If you're a professional athlete, you can get treatment. Um, you know, there's the entire hidden 
world of uh, political and, and, and physician connections. Uh, and then there's also the tier of people who get so frustrated with the Canadian system that they're traveling abroad to get treatment. So we already do have a, a significant multi-tier system, uh, even in terms of the, our lifestyles. You know, people have uh, are able to afford different sorts of foods and treatments. So um, I think that, that's a little bit of a distraction. But what we do see when we're looking at these other countries with universal health care is that they focus on the province, on the promise of universal health care rather than how it's delivered. So if we look at a country like um, Switzerland and the Netherlands, um, they mandate that everybody needs to have um, needs to buy insurance, but they regulate the market so that you know nobody can get discriminated against. And they do it through both public and private insurers. If we look at a country like France, they have a huge mix just like many of the other countries over there, of public uh, not-for-profit hospitals and for-profit hospitals. Uh, in fact, for-profit hospitals are about one-third of all the hospitals in France. And yet you can generally use any either public or private insurance to receive treatment in a public or private hospital. They're using all of the tools at their disposal. And this is true in you know pretty much all of the other countries we're looking at. Germany, same thing. Australia, same thing. They're using public private not-for-profit, private for-profit, anybody who wants to come on board to deliver on this promise for treatment to do it. And all they're doing is they're regulating to make sure that it's never an issue of a financial barrier to, to access. So that's really helping them build up their capacity. And that's, you know, one side that we really need to look at. The other side that's very, very difficult to talk about in Canada sometimes is the fact that um, in all of these other countries, except I think maybe in Norway, they all have some sort of user fees or co-payments. Patients are generally expected to pay some portion of the cost of their treatment up to a certain limit. And what that does is it helps people understand that these are very scarce resources that need to be used responsibly. And it's always done in a, in a very, you know, in a way that's recognizing people's financial constraints. So it's always something like, you know, um, the first $100 and then off that everything is covered. Or it's up to 4% of your income or something like that. Or, you know, it's up to a maximum of $800 a year. However, if you're in low income or, or if you have a chronic uh, condition, you're exempt from it. But it's really helping, you know, temper the entire system, making sure that people are using these services responsibly. One of the indicators that we have over here is actually probably telling us a little bit about this issue, and that's the the wait time in the emergency department. You know, we have a situation where a lot of patients over here seem to not be able to get, you know, an appointment with a specialist or treatment they need. They end up going to the emergency department um, for things that really should not be treated in an emergency department. And, you know, it's a twofold reason why. The first is that there isn't enough capacity to actually deliver the case. And the other is that there is no incentive to not visit the emergency department, even if you have, let's say, a small cut in your finger. Um, but the basic understanding is that there are several different ways to deliver universal healthcare. Most of these other countries embrace the private sector. They have some form of cost sharing. Uh, they fund their hospitals in a technically different way than we do, which I'd be happy to talk about as well. But they don't stick to this thing that you know, if it's universal, it has to be, you know, a government monopoly over the funding and financing. Uh, unfortunately, that's where we've went, ended up really. Um, and, you know, I would guess it's mostly because we're very scared of what happens in the United States. We're talking to Bacchus Barua from the Fraser Institute Center for Health Policy Studies. We want to hear your stories as well. How long have you ever had to wait in an emergency room to see a doctor? Or have you ever had to wait more than four weeks to see a specialist? Phone numbers are 416 360 
or 1-866-740-4740. Bacchus, one of the things in the report uh, suggested that doctors or lack thereof in Canada and the U.S. might be part of the issue. They were saying that in both Canada and the United States, there's 2.6 doctors per thousand people, whereas in places like Germany and the Netherlands, they had significantly more than that. Is this just an issue simply of not having enough doctors? It's, I'd say, I mean, that's part of the issue for certain. Um, it's, I don't think it's the sole reason why. Um, the issue about doctors is something that, that we actually covered in another study that we do called Comparing Performance, which looks at Canada on a multitude of indicators in terms of number of resources and utilization and things like that. And not only do we have fewer doctors per capita, but we also have fewer MRI machines. We have fewer CT scanners. Um, or we're about average when it comes to nurses. Um, and, and the thing is, the low ratio of doctors actually has something to do with the government's interference in the supply of doctors. In the early 1990s, we actually had pretty much the average supply, uh, average ratio of, of uh, physicians to population in Canada. Um, and then there were, you know, uh, there was legislation to sort of limit that number or keep that number constant. In the meantime, other countries actually increased their ratios. Um, there was a little bit of back and forth. But one of the one of the strangest things that happened is that. Even though we um, started training more doctors in the 2000s, once they started graduating, it takes a while for them to, to get get trained. Once they started graduating about 2012, 2014, many of those doctors actually couldn't find employment. Now, that's a very ironic situation because you have a situation over here where we know we have fewer doctors per capita. We know there are patients waiting for treatment. And yet we're getting some data that's telling us that when, patient, when doctors are graduating in Canada, they can't get employment. And that really comes down to the financing of the healthcare system. In Canada, essentially, the government controls the purse strings, right? So uh, they also fund hospitals based on a budget. And once you reach that budget, you really can't fund anything more. And that's actually one of the reasons which is why we also have uh, not enough services being delivered, even though people are demanding more services. So it's, it's one of the big reasons why we see the long wait times we do. But again, the, the general reason why we have these long wait times is, is far more integrated about the constraints we've put on ourselves, um, saying that only government can provide this treatment. And if anybody else tries to do it, it starts to become a problem. Okay. Bacchus, we're going to go to the uh, phones. Uh, Stephen in Toronto, you want to talk about uh, your experience in hospital? Yeah, I just was in the hospital about a month ago. I was admitted, and I had about a six-hour wait in emergency. And while I'm waiting, you know, I'm hearing people, uh, what what they're in there for, and I'm wondering why is emergency accepting them rather than saying, I'm sorry, you need to make a doctor's appointment rather than being here. And uh, I I think an emergency department should have that right to uh, say, okay, this is not an emergency. You need to go to a clinic or make a doctor's appointment and i think that would certainly cut down on the weight now Stephen, thank you very much for that uh for for that call i appreciate it um now we do have triage uh departments in hospitals uh bacchus do you think when we we employ things like triage departments is that helping or hindering people uh from getting the treatment in a timely manner well dave look you know triage is, is a very normal part of any healthcare system and that's really how how um, it works you know when you're pre- 
presenting your condition, usually the healthcare system tries to uh, look at people who need care the most urgently um, and give them that care the most urgently, and people who have less serious conditions um, have to wait longer. Uh, but what's happening in, in Canada really is you're getting too many people funneling into the bottleneck of the emergency department because they aren't getting the sort of care that they need outside it. They're having difficulty, as we saw in this report, they're having difficulty receive after-hours care. So, you know, if you can't find a walk-in clinic or, or something like that after-hours, what do you do? You have to go to the emergency department. Um, if you have uh, something like, you know, even a prescription renewal and you need to go to a doctor for that and you find everything closed and, you know, your personal cost benefit is that, well, okay, I go to the emergency room, I wait a little bit, but I don't even have to pay anything for that. May as well go and do that. It's we set up a weird system of incentives um, when it comes to what patients and doctors are trying to do. Now, with triage, the one thing I do want to mention is that, you know, although it's very important, we actually have a huge problem with even triaging correctly over here. And the reason because of that is we have to wait significantly long even just to get um, scans like MRIs and CT scans and ultrasounds. And the thing is, those are very, very vital tools for triage. So if you have to wait very, very long just in order to understand how serious your condition is, or even to just to get an uh, appointment with a specialist, then we know that our triage system itself is not really working very, very well. So again, you know, it's a multitude of, of interconnected issues um, that we do have to um, take care of. And I think uh, the example that Steve gave is, is really just highlighting um, that entire problem on a very real um, practical sense. Keith in Rochester, go ahead. Oh, the twofold answer is you spread the services around so that people don't rely on the emergency rooms. And secondly, we have incentive programs in our country to get doctors in the rural areas where natural-born American doctors may want, not want to go. And it's been reported by rural people that the doctors who come into the rural areas, often from third-world countries, are better with patients than uh, uh, Americans, and so far as the, uh, to say it, uh, uh, many of the third world doctors are very good in so far as how they handle patients. So to wrap this up, you want to spread the services out so that no one area, like the emergency room, is being clogged up, and you provide incentives, because money talks, to get doctors and services into those areas. And for Toronto, if you're short, you get incentives to get the doctors to perk up and say, hey, I can go in there and do these services. Keith, thanks a lot for your call. Uh, Bacchus, I'm pretty sure that they already have, you know, some uh, programs that uh, benefit doctors who want to, say, work up north, right? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, that's that's not my area of specialization. Okay. I, I'm, my understanding is that that is actually true, and I think that that's what Keith was, was sort of alluding to. Maybe he's mentioning that there should be more of that going on. Um, but even even there with the doctor situation, that, that was something that we sort of created, which was, you know, we ended up with a situation where we had too few um, people studying and graduating and, and, um, and getting into the medical field over here. We essentially, therefore, have to rely a lot more on foreign-trained physicians, um, which is great. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's good that there are people who are coming and willing to, to work over here and, and, and actually provide these services, which are now in shortage. Um, but, you know, again, one of the, one of the let's say, the more uh, controversial things to think about is that, okay, if we have fewer doctors, if we have not enough services being delivered, um, and yet we also have this gap um, in terms of the people needing services, um, what is the harm if we say, okay, 
you know, doctors in your free time after you're done, you know, uh, doing all, all the treatment in, in the public hospital, should you now be allowed to treat patients privately in a private clinic, in a private setting, so that we can sort of, you know, get rid of this long wait time? Saskatchewan actually is one province that sort of experimented with that a little bit, where it started contracting out surgeries to third-party private clinics. Um, and they did it within the confines of the CHA, so there were no payments required or anything like that, but they managed to build capacity very quickly as a result of that. And they went from a province that had some of the longest wait times for treatment in Canada in about 2009 or 10 to actually having the shortest wait time in Canada last year and the second shortest this year. So there are certain things that provinces can do, but even when they do it, they start reaching their limits very, very quickly. Unless we actually think about the fundamental question of what option do we give patients when they can't receive timely access to care, I think we're not going to get very, very far. Now, before we get away from the study and before time gets away from us, which it is very quickly, (laughs) I I want to say that uh, not all of the report was negative. Now, yes, timely services were, were the worst in these 11 countries, but the report does say that once you do get in to see your doctor, Canadians report that they're getting phenomenal treatment. Yeah, so, you know, that's, that's, um, that was definitely part of the, of the report. And let, let me try and summarize it a little bit, because I think that's also a little bit of too much of a positive spin. When it came to indicators of person-centered care, which is sort of covering all of that, uh, we did above average on 11 indicators, same as average on 10 indicators and below average on seven indicators. Right. Um, so even there, the story was not really complete. We're sort of kind of all over the place. And that's something that we actually saw in our old report when it came to quality of care. But I do want to focus on that very statement, which I think um, some one of the authors actually mentioned as well, that once you get your foot in the door, you actually get good treatment. Now, that's a great, that's a great thing to see on its own. But the problem is getting your foot in the door. What is the point of having something where you get excellent treatment, but you never actually get into the system? In fact, I think it was one of the Supreme Court uh, justices in the 2005 Kauli case who specified very, very straight up that access to a waiting list is not access to healthcare, And I think that that's something that we really need to focus on. Bacchus Barua, Senior Economist from the Fraser Institute Center for Health Policy Studies. We could have done this all hour. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on the show. You take care. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.